Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Philip Cutler. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Philip as a person, Professor Cutler as a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Cutler is Professor Emeritus at Northwestern. He has authored 57 books, including the most widely used marketing book in graduate business schools worldwide. He has published over 150 articles in leading journals, several of which have received best article awards. Professor Cutler was the first recipient of the American Marketing Association's Distinguished Marketing Educator Award, as well as the European Association of Marketing Award, the Paul Converse Award, Charles Coolidge Parlin Award, he was given the title of being a legend in marketing, ranked number one on management A-list of academics, was the first recipient of the William Wilkie American Marketing Association Foundation's Marketing for a Better World Award for significant contributions to marketing theory and practice. In 2013, he was inducted into Management Hall of Fame and also became the first recipient of the Sheth Foundation Medal for Contribution to Marketing. Thank you, Philip, for joining us. Well, thank you for the summary. Uh, that was very difficult to narrow everything you have accomplished in, in two minutes. Uh, what did you want to become uh, when you were a child? You know, I grew up in a uh, lower middle class household, and I noticed uh, very quickly uh, that wealth was very unequally distributed around the world. There were rich people, there were working class people, there were poor people. And that got me interested in the subject of economics because I thought the answers to the problem of distribution of income is found in economics. And I uh, therefore went to uh, the University of Chicago and uh, my professor was Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winner who had his theory of economics. And then just to correct some of his one-sided view of the world, I then went on to MIT to hear two other eminent professors who received Nobel Prizes, uh, and that's Professor Paul Samuelson and Professor uh, uh, Solo. And they were very different in their opinion. Instead of saying that everything about the economy should be free, no restraints, let business do what it wants to, it's for the common good. These professors said that often there are bad practices, there's monopoly, um, and that the government should play a more important role in making the economy work better for more people which was very well illustrated by the um, events during the, um, uh, when Franklin D. Roosevelt had to save the economy basically and made government an important instrument in keeping and in, in, in trying to build up more employment, more jobs and so on. So all of that kept me interested in economics, except I had a realization after a while that the theory of economics is really one-sided. Namely, it assumes a rational man that all of us make decisions that are very rational. 
I suddenly, I, I surely learned that just from my own buying behavior and watching other buyers that emotions play a very big role in decision making. You can't talk about the rational man. Um, just watch someone at uh, who's checking out at a food counter. You'll see that they will grab some candy they see it was not part of their intention. But uh, we are very emotional, uh, basically, in a lot of our decision making. So that got me interested in the field of marketing. And what was very important is that I spent a year with a group of 50 selected people who were all teachers of economics who were deficient in their mathematics. And the Ford Foundation wanted more teachers of economics and finance and marketing to be given the tools of quantitative analysis. So we spent a year at Harvard learning matrix algebra, a lot of math. And in that experience, I found a very interesting group of marketing professors when I'm an economist, basically. And I joined that group. And I got quite excited about the question of what is the role of marketing in creating social good? Do marketers create help increase the amount of social good or actually abuse it? So now I'll stop here because that gives you some, some of my background in, in moving from uh, training in economics to getting very turned on to the role of marketing. Well, up to this point, <laughs> you started with, I mean, I'm an economist. You started on the light side and then you moved to the dark side. But then uh, you <laughs> sold me the idea that uh, marketing people are the light side and I was mistaken all my life, which is possible, obviously. But then the question is, do marketing people produce or do marketing does marketing produce social good or welfare for the society now at that part uh, at that question uh, we, we have to think about it a bit uh, does marketing because i thought you you would say oh you know then i went to kahneman and tversky i got something in psychology uh, which was the natural progression when you started talking about biases impulse buying and uh, maybe some emotions uh, uh, scattered on, on it, but then you went directly to uh, operational side to, to marketing. Um, well, the good news is that even uh, the economists began to increasingly say their theory was too narrow, and now most economists believe in behavioral economics. And behavioral economics is really social science economics. So the idea is, if you are going to postulate a whole theory of how business people behave, you've got to have a view that takes in psychology, anthropology, social psychology, cultural analysis, and so on. So I am very happy to be an economist, but I want to be seen as a behavioral economist. In fact, my work on social marketing, 
it is an example of trying to see how we can produce better changes in behavior. For example, uh, a lot of uh, people are drinking, uh, are, uh, they are busy um, with habits of alcoholism. Uh, they are taking in dope often. And the field I helped invent was called social marketing, not, to, not societal marketing, which I'll distinguish because I really helped invent both of those. But social marketing was a set of procedures to help show people that certain behaviors are harmful to them and they might have the pathway to increasing uh, their behaving in a way which will increase their the quality of their life. So we started to talk about examining questions like, why do we get addicted to X, Y, or Z? Why do kids eat too much food that is not nutritious? As a matter of fact, I began to realize that the purpose of social marketing is to contradict commercial marketing. That a lot of commercial marketing feeds us more an interest in more products that are not nutritious and um, that social marketing is a corrective of commercial marketing when there's been too many bad things done by commercial marketing. Uh, Philip, uh, you mentioned behavioral economics. There's behavioral finance, like uh, David Hirschleifer's uh, work on how he looks at the weather and how it impacts the uh, buying behavior of stocks and investments uh, in the market. Uh, how do you deal with uh, the question of greed or the, the power of greed, uh, the corporate greed at least, uh, in in your work? How, how does it factor in? Well, I've, I've often written pieces about the ethics of uh, marketing uh, and marketers. Um, Greed is uh, a human tendency that we all have in part. Uh, and if we are in a big position in a company, uh, running it, for example, uh, we're out to make money. Uh, in fact, uh, now we are increasingly asking companies to not start with the goal of profit making, but to start with the goal of purpose making. What is your the purpose of your business? If you clarify that, you might have even more profit, by the way. But uh, the idea is, are you trying to help people live a better life? In other words, what's the impact of your business on their happiness and well-being as customers? Can you factor that in? Can you show me that by buying your product, I'm going to be better off in one or more ways? 
if you're only going to appeal to my appetites, I might be eating very bad stuff, uh, buying clothes that is throwaway clothes, basically. So purpose has perhaps started on its way to influence business thinking. Now, for example, take the fact that we now have to factor in sustainability, not only profitability, in urging companies for better behavior. Because we worry about whether the next generation, that is our children and grandchildren, will live as well as we have been able to live or will be living worse and worse because climate is being destroyed and possibly the planet by a thing called carbon, which is generated by our industry and our behavior. Just moving generates some carbon. Um, and what can we do to, what we've noticed is a great number increase in fly in fires, for, forest fires, hurricanes, uh, floods, etc. So shouldn't we ask business to make their profits, but also build sustainability into their practice? And many of them, the companies have, endorse that point that sustainability should be not just an add-on but intrinsic to making things are they using good materials i mean we know that plastics tons of plastics are in our oceans who's responsible actually one of the big things we've all noticed is that business has not taken responsibility for what we call uh the, the 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 net effects of their behavior um they will for example open a, a mine to take uh, to get at carb uh, at copper and to get uh, at other minerals and leave the mine when it's exhausted in a terrible condition and the land around the mine is just left as uh, just wasted soil and and so on there's many examples where companies are getting away with it. See, we don't want to stop companies from doing these things. We want them to take the full costs of what they're creating. And if they price on the full costs, they may have no customers. I understand that. So that would mean that that activity is not really valued. So as an economist, I, I value the externalities. I watch for, for the negative externalities that are being created by business. And you know what I do with that? I, approach, I bring up the subject of demarketing. So I created the idea that we may have to go against certain business practices that, let's say, for example, a certain company uses a lot of water. Let us also say that in California and elsewhere there's, in the world, there's water shortages. That in fact, making that product, and maybe we may call it just growing flowers, 
is a very growing flowers uses so much water that maybe instead of celebrating beautiful flowers, we should have some controls over how much water is available and is it should be water. We should have enough for drinking and our health. Do we have to use it in making a lot of products that are highly consumers of water? So demarketing is the campaign's name in California when they found out that there was water shortages and they asked companies to go to conserve water. They ask individuals to stop showering every morning. They, they, that is social marketing. Doesn't the price mechanism fix it? You're right. As an economist, you're raising a good question. Um, we, but the isn't that the question of shouldn't we say to a company, please set your price on the cost you have to manufacture the product and the negative externalities that you are creating. The difference is they don't cover as a cost, since it doesn't fall to them, it falls to the society. So they are charging us less than they should fully charge us for the cost of delivering that product. No, I understand. So this is about low quarters. Yeah. And uh, the minute I pay a dollar to buy it, uh, the property right of ownership and control rights actually are embedded on me. It is mine. But you're saying the responsibility is the company that manufactures the plastic bottle and uses uh, transportation means to bring it from such and such distance to me because of carbon footprint, etc. Yeah, but ownership has already transferred. So the, the, the property rights is actually transferred, uh, the will, the power, the uh, cash flow rights, the decision rights, everything to me, uh, isn't it? Then uh, the originator of the well, product- Well, I'd like to convince you not to use bottled water. <laughs> okay. I'd like a marketing campaign to convince people that Water, uh, that's fine if they are at home and they have something that looks like this uh, mm. and they fill it and they carry the, now this one may be too large for them to carry, but why should we have a whole industry making plastic bottles, which only end up in the ocean much of the time? Why shouldn't companies be that make plastic bottles for industry be required to buy them, to collect them and buy them back and to make it easy for consumers to know where they could easily, if they're conservative conserv consumers, how easy it is to collect and dispose of. See, hmm. social, and I call that, I say that certain industries are not good for what we call society. There's a thing called societal marketing, a little different than social marketing. Notice the difference. Social marketing are techniques for trying to discourage bad practices and encourage replacement by better practices. Social 
And society marketing is about what is marketing's impact on society. For example, I was recently looking at the game of Monopoly. The game of Monopoly is a wonderful game. Uh, we all enjoy it. Actually, but its essence is to train us to be very uh, uh, competitive and to buy property and to form monopolies if we can. So you might argue that the game of monopoly is a training in materialism. It is a training in the virtues of a, a private competitive uh, life, uh, hopefully leading to high living and profitability. So with these new sense of uh, society's impact and what, what it is, uh, for example, I just finished an article. I wanted to know how many billionaires there are in the world. There's 2,700, and that's an underestimate. I know them by countries, by the way. In my article, I wrote down how many billionaires there are in China, in India, in the U.S. And I find a discomfort with the idea that people, by the way, it isn't, you're not just a billionaire because you have one billion. Most of the billionaires are not one billion dollar, one, one billion. They are multi-billion. So then I ask chat, see the chat system, which I use, identify the number of billions that the top 20 uh, billionaires have. Well, I think it starts, like, I'd have to find the article, but everyone, they're, they're in the, the, the 200 billion level, the 400 billion level. I mean, one person, one family. So the question is, if I believe in, in a good economy that is really helping poor people and working class people, and that was my starting part point in life, why are there the differences, strong differences in distribution of income? I find we have a major problem in having too much money in the hands of too few people, which leads me to want a remedy. And it's called taxing. We undertax the rich. Oh, they say they, they're, they're responsible for most of the taxes, paying most of the taxes. They, they do have that point. They do pay taxes. Not enough by any measure, if you care about the well-being of most of the people in a society. So the result is I have switched from what we call American capitalism to not another system called non-capitalism, but to a better capitalism, which is called Nordic capitalism. Nordic capitalism is just a description of the system that Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Finland and Iceland use. Namely, I'll tell you a story. If an American is known to earn to, to earn each year about four hundred thousand or six hundred thousand dollars. A European looks at that number and says, "You must be a wealthy 
person that's so much money. What are you complaining about? Well, I'm complaining as someone earning 400,000 because I have three children and I can't really afford the college for them. And I also know that if my health breaks down, I might have a bill that is so tremendous it wipes out my savings. In other words, I'm saying I'm a rich, poor American. Did you ever heard the term a rich, poor? No. A rich, poor is a person whose income sounds good, but he's not covered for health problems, education problems, or or um, uh, uh, where, where he lives. So the point is the Nordic system is different. The Nordic system charges more taxes, higher taxes, but you don't have, you get your college free education. You get your health fully covered. So the question is, there's a collision between two types of economies, both capitalistic. Is life better for Americans or for Swedes? All right, let me answer that. I think the evidence would be in the form of the populations of the two countries with respect to how healthy the people are in those two countries, how happy those people are, and how educated those people are. If you look at Norway, Sweden, and so on, they, their populations are the most educated, the most well-being health-wise, and the most happy compared to those under a capitalism which does not handle the public problems that happen to people when big problems happen to people. So I'm a capitalist, but I'm a Nordic capitalist. No, it does make sense. Uh, you're talking about uh, the social states being the major players. And I think I remember a paper, I don't know if it's published, it was still an SSRM paper a couple of years ago. Uh, they compared it to Kuwait and some Middle Eastern uh, countries uh, that were oil rich, that the government was basically owning everything and they were just dispersing wealth among the, the constituents. But uh, historically, uh, Denmark didn't start off like this. They are actually very poor. Uh, they, very, they, Denmark they was a poor country at one time, yes. Very poor country. They didn't have food to eat. So uh, the question was, uh, what, saved the, what saved the country to get into the capitalist system and then the social capitalism uh, and how come Germany couldn't follow that one? Um, although they had a couple of paradigm shifts uh, throughout uh, uh, their history. But eventually, based on the story that you just told with the Monopoly game, uh, a couple of years ago, I read that the CEOs of all these great companies in the US, instead of playing Monopoly, they were playing some game called Catan. So I was looking content. Catan. So I said, "What is Catan? It's a trading game, and it's building civilizations, buying goods and services over board game uh, material. But there is not 
there is no one board. There are six boards, six different Catans. There is one for islands. There is one for the oceans. There is one for the land, mining, etc. And uh, what I heard was that these CEOs would gather every weekend in their basement, and uh, they would play Catan for hours at an end, and they would uh, think about how to make more money, how to dominate the world, etc. So this is what we did. A couple of years ago, we started a group of Catan players uh, here in Cleveland, and a couple of my friends joined. In the basement, we have these huge boards of Catan attached to each mm -hmm. other. Over the course of a couple of years, the story of uh, non-monopolistic competition of uh, evolved life actually converged to more monopolistic competition of the old school monopoly. The goal was to beat others and get their cattle and get their woods and iron ore, etc. Nothing really changes. Nothing really changes. This greed is not possible to take out of human uh, the human condition. Uh, it is there. It is embedded. Uh, you mentioned uh, they are people are undertaxed. I mean, it's a very political argument, true. Uh, but what's the right amount of taxation then, right? So uh, as an economist, I mean, it's easier for me to think about the price mechanism that fixes things. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm of Turkish descent. Obviously, when something goes wrong with my health, I get on the plane, I fly to Turkey because the government there has these beautiful uh, hospitals that take care of you. You don't pay mm -hmm. a dime. Mm -hmm. uh, because you would have to wait three months in, in the in, in the line to get to some doctor in the United States. Sure. Uh, but there are some frictions here, right? So... Uh, so I want to cover some of my questions. That these are very fascinating topics yeah, that you're sure, discussing. Sure. But uh, if you could do it all over again, if you could start all over again, would you follow the same path of uh, careers? Uh, would you start with Chicago, uh, then uh, MIT, econ, and then get into uh, an elevated form of marketing? Uh, would yeah. you do that, or uh, would you do it differently? Well, I believe that I'm sort of a born scholar type, uh, and teaching and learning is my life's pleasure. In fact, I tell people I haven't worked a day in my life if work is a bad thing, because I've been always playing, and playing means that uh, as, as a professor, I, I don't really have a boss, but I can do what I want. And um, so I'm never, never going to retire because I always am enjoying learning things and sharing the learnings. So I wouldn't say that my career would have been better in another way. It is true that many people end up in a career that was not their first choice. Best examples would be friends I've had who were going to be concert pianists. They were that good. That's what they wanted to do, and they loved to do it. But their parents said there's no future, as they say to artists, too. And they become lawyers. 
And I think the whole field of law consists of people who are very depressed. They can do it well, but they're missing something. So I, I'm not that, that's not my situation. I, everything I did, I look back at and it was right. And I hadn't planned a lot of that, but it came and I found it fine for my purposes. So that's my answer to your question that I wouldn't imagine changing any step along the way. What are you most passionate about? Most what? Passionate about. What's your passion? Oh, first of all, I am a born collector. I have an interest in, um, uh, for example, what is called contemporary glass work. If you've known about huge pieces of glass being made, it's a form for sculpture. You can make human figures and sculpt them not in marble or wood, but in glass. And so as a result, uh, I ended up having one of the top collections in the field of contemporary art glass and built a museum, a part of the, the Ringling Museum in, in Sarasota, Florida, uh, has the glass part of the museum, which I uh, built uh, because and many, many people come up to me and say, oh, I never knew glass could be such a medium of art. And so I also have two other collector interests from Japanese experience I've had. One of them is, taught, is called collecting netsukis, little art objects made of ivory or wood carvings that are not bigger than uh, it's a piece of sculpture that you can hold in your hand. Mm. It shows uh, either a little a tiger with a ferocious growl or a saint, saintly uh, person, a Japanese person uh, carrying a big sack on his back. So I collect Natsukis and I collect sword guards. The Japanese swords are fantastic swords and and uh, they often come apart and the guard keeps your hand from going from the handle into the blade. And that's a piece of art. So when you say passions, I'm, I'm excited about things like that and paperweights and other things. And then I'm excited about people, meeting people, students. And I find that most of the students I, te I teach, but I don't learn from them, but there's always some that are my teachers. So that the idea of being a mentor and having mentees, the, I've had great satisfaction in having a number of men mentees who were my mentors. They knew so much more about something that I was so interested in and uh, they became my PhDs, some of them, and so on and so forth. So I have a lot of passions that keep me. I wish I would, right now, if I wanted to, I would learn a new a musical instrument or, a, or learn a language. Uh, so as a 
born born learner. There's never been any boredom in my life. About the thinking process, uh, so you're sitting idle, your mind is uh, wandering in idle curiosity, some uh, new idea comes to your mind. Um, how does it take uh, take shape? What do you do? You you spend months working on it? Do you work on multiple projects at a time? Do you work every day? How, how is the process for you? Yeah, I, I would say every day, uh, just like any writer of a novel, has to have a commitment either to do all the writing each morning of the week uh, or does it in other forms. Uh, I don't have, I, I'm pretty more f uh, free to, but let's say most of the time in the past, I have been working on one or more books. Uh, right now, I wrote an article recently called why I wrote 90 books. <laughs> I did not write all of them by myself. I wrote about 30 or 40 by myself. I wrote another number of them with one more author. In fact, I have an author who I wrote eight books with and a woman author who I wrote seven books with. And so that keep, kept me busy and on purpose for a lot, of, a, a lot of weeks of the year when I'm on a book. And when I'm not on a book, I'm probably working on one or two articles that convey some an interest in things that I believe a lot of people should know more about or would like to benefit from. So as far as the articles are concerned, I've often assembled a bunch of them in the book too. Uh, for example, I, there's a company called Medium, and I have 35 articles, and I get good feedback on 35 uh, short articles. I would say they're the, the, the minute it's these are five minutes to read or 10 minutes to read, and I have 35 of them in what is called Medium, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, a lot of people uh, write articles also for that medium magazine. Uh, Philip, for the next five years, what do you see as the biggest forefront? What's the next big thing uh, in the field for Ivy? Uh, the big questions, the big challenges. In, in the field of economics or marketing? International marketing? business, international marketing. Uh, what do you see oh, yeah. as the next trend? Well, I have a friend who's a futurist uh, who uh, thinks about the power play of China, the US, Russia, India. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking, why is it that China and India have not scolded Russia for starting a war on a free country and I'm finding out that they had relations with Russia and buying, and they, China's an example that needs oil and they can get it from China, from, uh, from Russia. Uh, that India has bought a lot of products in the past uh, vehicles and other things from Russia. 
and they can't over suddenly change to a whole different type of vehicle. So their economic interests are keeping them from saying to Russia, you know, you're making the world a less peaceful world and a less profitable world for most people. Um, so the, I understand better, and I'm hoping that privately China, you see, because the truth is if China and India together would pressure Putin, he, he would have to stop the war. If they won't, say they won't do business with him anymore, he, the, Russia will flatten out as a country. It's already a, a very poor economic country, by the way. They, they have nothing to sell that we really want to buy. So I think privately, it's in the interest of China and India to caution him and slow him down if possible, but they can't do it because commercially, they're, they're, the trading relationships is such that they, they benefit. They can't put their economy at risk. An Indian told me that if they stop dealing with Russia, they'd become more like Pakistan, a very poor country. India would become a very poor country. So you're talking about realism. Uh, well, I wrote a, bo a book called Marketing Peace. It was, it's a naive question. I mean, it's not just a matter of marketer marketing something. It's, I mean, I can market a new soda. Market peace. How do you market peace? That question came to me from a, um, a, a, a person who was in the family of the Osamas, the, the bad guy we, we had. He said, Kotler, why don't you market peace? I said, I never thought of that. So I wrote about it. And the main thing is, I'm very much hoping when I look ahead, that the big hope is that we have to have nations in trade with each other to produce value for everyone. And it's, we, I wanted to see the GDP grow, but I also want to see it better distributed. Why are workers who do most of the work paid so little in relation to a guy, call it a, a, a president, who is earning 320 times what his average worker is getting as a median income? We, we, are, we, we have gone crazy in overpaying people. We used to pay them maybe 20 times what the worker was paid. It's 300, not, it's not only 320, that's the median average. There are guys who run a company and they're taking home a thousand times what a worker gets in that company. I'm surprising, surprised the workers don't rebel. Hmm. Yes, there's greed. There's every, every, billionaire is a very greedy person but he says but don't touch me or tax me because i give away a lot of money to help poor people and working class but i but i and i build the museums and i help uh, the libraries and parks uh public parks i have i'm i'm a philanthropic person 
But all that philanthropy, by the way, that also is used to do space flights at great cost to get to Mars, which is not about helping us for a long time. So they are philanthropic, but the philanthropic impulse is not organized in a way to end hunger in the world. That's problem number one. To end uh, homelessness in the world, problem number two. Can we not tax a little more so we organize the money so no one goes hungry and no one is homeless? That's all I'm asking. <laughs> this was quite interesting. We went from I mean, we talked about altruism, neoliberalism, social democracy, neoclassical philanthropy, uh, uh, monopoly. We, I don't think we left out anything we haven't touched. <laughs> we left out marketing. Yeah, yes. except uh, mm -hmm. how do you get the water to the house to put in the steel canisters? That is the question that we don't discuss. <laughs> but yeah. uh, right. Uh, your advice to junior faculty and uh, PhD students to become successful like you you did, uh, what should they be doing? What should they be not doing? Yeah. Um, yes, we, we have to help uh, people starting out in, in their career uh, to recognize this, that uh, first they should go and do more of what they really care about that gives them passion in their work. Uh, secondly, um, if they study what is getting popular, uh, for example, uh, a, a marketing person uh, starting out, um, if, if he's interested not only in teaching marketing, but being invited by companies to help companies do a better job and maybe even get on the board of some companies, then find out what companies need to know and be the expert in providing that. For example, many companies are just getting to hear about CAT GPT, Chat GPT. Uh, they have they don't know how to use it yet. Uh, it, it's an advance over what was just a set of new things, new tools of, of marketing like uh, voice, uh, facial recognition, and voice recognition. And um, I can list a whole bunch of tools, the Internet of Things, and so on. But find out what companies are lacking in skill sets. And why not, as a professor, be the expert in those new skill sets that are going to be in high demand? Now, you might say, well, they should just know, uh, be, be a good consumer behavior person. Really just say, oh, you've read a lot of literature on the social sciences and you now know how people nor normally behave. Well, there's a, lot of there's a lot of experts on consumer behavior. There are hardly any experts on how marketing can be uh, improved through chat GPT, which just started two years ago. So I uh, I would advise uh, ambitious uh, marketers to 
get into certain corners that are under under attended. In the I have a question. I, I want to interrupt here. Um, Noam Chomsky uh, talked about uh, chat GP that thing, the yes. artificial intelligence chat thing that produces uh, text. And then there are these programs that put a face in front of the text and the person basically looks like uh, a real person, uh, moves, uh, makes facial uh, things, uh, mimics. And he called it, this is advanced plagiarism. And there are these- Please, the wait, Advanced plagiarism. plagiarism. Yeah. It's a good uh, point. It, it's capable of so being plagiarism. My question, there are these two types of people. One is very flexible. Uh, there's this new thing and he wants to go after it. Yeah. There are these other people who are equally smart, equally, equally accomplished, who are traditionalists. They say, you know what? The, the, the basic principle of the matter is uh, the program should not be thinking. The program cannot think. The human does. So why don't you do such and such? So these two types of people who yeah. are, one is very flexible, like water, and the other one is uh, very unflexible, very rigid, and yet uh, he wants to call it like uh, principled. Uh, what yeah. is is there a soft uh, uh, is there a soft spot between them? Is there a, a right amount of combination, or do you have to pick one? Well, you know, isn't it the old story that any new invention can be used for good or evil. I mean, a car is wonderful to have, but you kill people with a car if you use it wrong. Um, the, it is true that the, the, the new methodologies can allow us to propagandize, to uh, get into what we call misinformation and disinformation. Uh, we can show a picture uh, with the face of uh, Biden, let's say, uh, even saying something that Biden would never say, but get it on into media, and and then confuse people about what he's saying. So there's a lot of abuse we've got to spot and highlight things that uh, that are not that are fake, fake, fake news, basically. Mm -hmm. Yes, a lot of this, but on the other hand, when I got into the chat uh, development uh, that it helps you so quickly understand something because remember the chat is going around the world and I'm not going around on my own searching about everything said about a subject and then putting it out in text which is very balanced and readable with some errors, they may say this is three years ago and they, they're wrong, it was one year ago. Yes, there are errors. Uh, the trouble that high schools are, have now is they can't ask students anymore just to write essays at home because the students who are trained are going to get a beautiful essay done for them by just going to chat. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you tell the kids that I'm going to put a question to the, to you in class and turn off your computers. You're going to right now write an essay on that. So they can't go to chat in, in their computer 
and so on. So everything could be used for good or bad. I'm, I, I wouldn't, you, I know you wouldn't go so far as to say that, therefore, a professor who wants to learn chat and use it and be a specialist in its use shouldn't do it because it, it's also an instrument that could be used for fake, faking things. No, you, the companies need need the positive use of it for expediting a lot of their work. For example, when you're writing copy for a new product, uh, do you know, probably chat could write a better initial thing that you could change around than you can. Chat is now writing poems for people. I just wrote a, a love poem to my wife and it's so beautiful. <laughs> she, she, I had to tell her I didn't really write it. It was made by chat. <laughs> That's fascinating. Okay, for the sake of time, last question. What's the question that I should have asked you about Timmons? Uh, the question about what is a question that I should have asked you about Timmons? Oh, uh, uh, about... Uh, did I leave out anything? Oh, uh, oh, uh, about uh, what, else, what else you might have asked me? Um, you, you did a good job because we got into all the side talk about so many things and I've enjoyed that with you too. Uh, I would say uh, you did list a whole bunch of questions that I read about, but I don't remember anything that we could add to our discussion. Uh, I will say that um, marketing is at a point now which may need a a new think. There's a book I just saw called The Marketing Rebellion or something. And they, one argument is that marketers have forgotten humanity. They say that they care about the customer, but they don't show it and they don't really care. They, they're so, the large companies never are close to you. They're, you're just another person. And that we got to get back to a marketing that meets its claim of really customizing for you, knowing you well enough to design, to not bother you when you're not going to buy a car and to offer you a very good car when you really want a good car. So that problem has its downside too, because how much do I want a an auto company to know about me? I mean, yes, I would want them to know about a wish I might have for a certain type of car, but they're going to try to nowadays, they can find out how I shop, what media I watch, uh, what moves me. They, they, I sometimes think there's a real privacy issue that marketers have skirted and avoided, which is going to blow up in their face to some extent. Hmm. But thank you for your questions. They were very helpful for my own thinking. Thank you for your insightful comments. And uh, I learned a lot. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, you gave a lot of things to think about. And these side dishes are the actual main course. <laughs> uh, this was very good, a good spread of tapas.
Thank you so much, uh, Philip. Uh, I Thank enjoyed you. it a lot. Thanks. Okay, and I and as another economist, uh, the two of us uh, enjoy talking about these things together. Thank you. <laughs>